The Green Sun Show is brought to you by CEA Technology, a leader in building indoor growing systems that allow you to grow pesticide-free and conserve fertilizer, water, and energy to grow crops sustainably. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more. One or two? Do you see better with one, glasses, or two, LASIK surgery? I trust my eyes to the Northwest Indiana Eye and Laser Center located in Valparaiso, Indiana. The state-of-the-art office and surgery center is the best in the region, providing complete eye care, including exams, glasses, and eye surgery. To make an appointment, call 219-464-8223. That's 219-464-8223. Or visit their website, nwindianaeyeandlaser.com. Trust your eye care to the best. And we thank the Northwest Indiana Eye and Laser Center for their support. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. This week, Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, will take a look back at green automotive news from 2023, and our guru of gears, who we affectionately call, will make his prognostication on what to expect in 2024. Tom, welcome back to Green Sense. Hey. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. All right. You're a wealth of uh, fact-based information. Tell us about Consumer Guide Automotive's process for undercovering objective information. Yeah, one of the things that we've done, and Consumer Guide's been around for 60 years, and we haven't changed our, our vehicle reporting that much over time. We still like to break down every element of a vehicle into different categories, acceleration, room and comfort, front seat room and comfort, rear seat ride, quietness, and interior materials, things like this. And, and we really try hard not to be too excited about something just because it's fun or good looking. And in fact, we try not to let looks figure into the, uh, into the equation until the end, you know, when we finally write a, a summary. But we're, it's very important to us to get to the bottom of a thing and not be influenced by hype. And, and, and for that reason, we're often late to the show with a full review, but we didn't want to base it based entirely on a short preview drive. And how do you rank things? Do you have a scale and is that subjective or is that quantifiable? Uh, both. It depends what we're rating. But one of the things that we try to do is to review a vehicle uh, based on its appropriateness for the category. So if you're doing something like a midsize crossover, there is something, there's the Chevy Blazer, for example, very nice vehicle. But it's a little bit expensive and a little bit tight on rear seat room and its space. So it may not be the best family vehicle. Nice vehicle if you're single, but we try to, we try to think of midsize crossovers as family vehicles. And, and they need to be appropriate for that function. How does Consumer Guide uh, Automotive report information about green vehicles? And who do you, who's your target audience? Our target audience is the everyday consumer. So right now, when we think about green vehicles, we think about their appropriateness for people who are considering a gasoline vehicle as well. And it's for that reason that we seriously recommend that people have access to a home charger at this point in time before buying a green vehicle. And uh, I know this is a common question. Consumer Guide has been out for a long time. Is there any relationship between Consumer Guide and Consumer Guide Automotive? Consumer Guide and Consumer Guide Automotive are basically the same thing. There once was, and the confusion, uh, there once was a Consumer Guide Products division that we were related to under the same parent company. That company is gone now. 
Okay. That helps clarify that. <laughs> and what role does the uh, publication play in shaping consumer perception? I hope it plays a big role. Uh, we try to be very moderate with our feelings. And, and as much as that we believe personally, in the, in the case of green vehicles, that, that EVs are the future, we don't want people to have to move to them in any hurry if, that, if that's not a good fit for them. So we try to be as moderate as possible. We try to be as truthful as possible. But we don't hide our excitement about new technology either. We, we welcome it, uh, but we think that people should be cautious about it. Ah, the truth. Something we don't see a lot of these days, and we'll get into that. <laughs> well, 2023 was a very confusing year for both manufacturers and buyers of cars. As the long-term manufacturing trend is moving from ICE, uh, internal combustion engines, to EVs, and the supply demand was further impacted by high interest rates, the expensive price of a new car, and shortages of some models. Myself, I'm looking to buy a car, and I'm not sure what to do. Should I wait for prices to come down? Uh, should I buy a hybrid or an EV? So if I'm the average guy, and that could be a terrible assumption, <laughs> but if I'm considered <laughs> the average guy, uh, just think how confused the auto manufacturers are. If I don't know what I want, how do they know what cars to build and which ones to sell? So I lead in with, what challenges are Ford, GM, and Stellantis, the big three U.S. auto manufacturers, having as they transition from traditional ICE to EV production vehicles? Yeah. One of the biggest challenges, and, and this came to realization in the last few months, is that, is that auto EV adoption is not going to happen as quickly as everyone had hoped. And we saw early on, especially with Ford, that there was this great excitement around the Mustang Mach-E and the Ford F-150 Lightning, both electric vehicles, both pretty exciting and compelling to drive, uh, good products for the most part, but but demand was overestimated. And Ford also got greedy. Uh, they raised the prices dramatically on these vehicles when they were trying to meet early demand. And that, to some extent, shut down demand. And then we had supply chain shortages and all the happy, smart, fun buzz around these vehicles kind of faded away. And reality set in. And we just heard now that Ford is going to cut uh, F-150 production by half. Now, that's still a significant number. They're going to make about 80,000 units. That'll be more than 10% of total F-150 production. But it is a reality check. And you're talking about the Lightning, not the uh, ICE vehicle. Correct? Yes, yes. The yes. electric F-150 Lightning. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting. And I agree with you is that uh, some of the sticker prices, uh, uh, they were selling those cars for what, 20, 30,000 over that price? Yeah. And it always seems like at the beginning of an introduction, there are people willing to pay silly money for a vehicle <laughs> and you could never make sense of it. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't get right into Tesla. And Tesla has consumed most of the oxygen in the room with the launch of the Cybertruck in late November. It's a beast of an automobile, uh, and you must see it in person. It's really impressive. It's very futuristic. But let's talk about some of the things to consider before you might want to consider buying a Cybertruck. And there's been a lot published about how the price is higher than it was originally estimated and the range was lower. But let's get into some of the issues others have not talked about. The first one I have is the headroom in the back of the seat. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, and just before we went on air and you and I started talking today, I, I was looking at some videos of the truck and it's really hard to get a look at the back seat. But from the outside, if you follow the roof line back, it looks like it's going to be a tight fit. Now, I've heard anecdotal reports that it's fine for people up to five foot ten, 
which is a little limiting. But I also watched a five foot five woman squeeze through the vehicle, and it didn't seem like she had a lot of additional space. But why this matters is because in the pickup truck market, especially full size trucks, your Silverados, your Rams, and your F one fifties, they're almost all crew cabs now. That's what sells, and rear seat headroom is a big, big deal. And most of those vehicles will accommodate people six three, six four easily. Well, I didn't get a chance to sit in the back, but that's something we'll look at and see uh, what kind of facts come out on that. Yeah. The next one for me that was most impressive was the uh, tire size. They have 35-inch tires on 20-inch rims. And the first thing that came to mind is what's the tire life? That's a very heavy vehicle with tremendous torque. And then next, what's the cost to replace those custom-made Goodyear tires and I know other uh, Tesla owners have replaced their cars after their tires after 20, 30,000 miles. So what's your thought on those two issues? Yeah, tire, tire life is, is a, a problem for the entire EV industry. Tires just go very quickly because there is so much torque available immediately that the sidewalls are being shredded in advance of the car of the, of the tread ever wearing. Um, additionally, there are things that are done to the tires to improve fuel economy. Generally, they're a harder compound, which makes the tire wear more quickly. The net result is people who own EVs are going to be buying tires maybe at twice the pace of non-EV owners. And in the case of the Tesla, these are going to be very expensive tires. <laughs> I heard that deep voice. What's very expensive mean? <laughs> it, it, it's hard to know, but I can't imagine that these tires will be less than 450 or $500 a piece. So if you own a, a Cybertruck, maybe don't do the Jackrabbit starts. <laughs> So you're looking at 1800 plus uh, yeah. per uh, change of tires. Wow, that's pretty expensive. Um, Tom, did you see the YouTube video where a 45 caliber Tommy gun, a 9 millimeter pistol, and an arrow from a compound bow were shot into the Cybertruck? I have, and I guess I guess it's good to know that you're protected in your vehicle, but that seems like the most unnecessary test ever. Well, what worries me is there's a lot of crazy people out there. Uh, when you come out to get your parked Cybertruck, how often do you think it will have been shot to test its claim of being bulletproof? I'm, I'm assuming way more often than any Cavalier or, or Fairmont. <laughs> yeah. So that's something to consider. Well, well, all these issues spell uncertainty, which equates to unknown risk. And for insurers, they don't like unknown risk. So the big question I have for you, what do you think insurance will cost for such a new vehicle that's never been built like this before? And and what's the you know, who's gonna insure the Cybertruck? I, I was unable to locate anything in the way of, of, of insurance costs for this vehicle, but I think what's going to happen, at least initially, for the first year or two years, you're gonna be best off insuring your vehicle through Tesla. Tesla does offer insurance for its vehicles that is cheaper than market price for insurance. And part of the reason is, is that Elon Musk was annoyed by how expensive Tesla insurance was in the open market. So he started his own insurance division, and that's what a lot of people are doing. The customer service reviews of that, unfortunately, are not great, but I don't know that Cybertruck owners are going to have a lot of choice. Well, along those lines, uh, who's going to repair those stainless steel panels when that Cybertruck gets in an accident? That is a great question. Um, I just counted. There are 37 Tesla collision repair centers in the U.S., which isn't nearly enough because 20% of those are in California and Texas. After that, you start, they start to get a little thin. 
And and that's obviously where you're going to have to go for a while. I don't think there are any independent service um, providers yet that are that are certified to repair this vehicle. It's just too new. And the panels are going to be pretty scarce for a while. Yeah. So again, things to consider. Well, another issue uh, is, you know, when you watch different media, the you know traditional TV, YouTube, you know, wh- wherever you get your news and media, it can be broken down into three categories, fake news, hate news, and fan news, especially when it comes to Tesla and the Cybertruck. Uh, tell us a little bit, what is fake news, hate news, and fan news? Yeah, I, I recently, and I've got a great example of how this works. I recently complained on YouTube, I'm sorry, on eBay, eBay either, on Twitter about the fact that I didn't like the wheel covers on the Cybertruck, which seemed like a pretty innocuous statement. Like, yeah, design-wise, I, I could, I would like different wheels. I was attacked. I was attacked by the Teslarati or Tesla fanboys for hating Tesla. And I was typical of the media that's just out to get Tesla. I'm like, I'm, I'm not. I just don't like the wheels. So that's your fanboys. And, and, and then the haters. Great story. Yeah, oh, man, that was a rough week. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, Elon Musk is creating his own hate path in his wake. And his, his personal actions and his actions on Twitter seem to be bouncing off of Tesla directly, which is a shame because Tesla is such an interesting company. And for all of the weirdness of Tesla and the misreporting of things like range and, and, and pricing and, and all of that, the vehicles are really compelling. And he really did start a car company and these cars are worth knowing about and owning. And, and there's recently a story about a Tesla with 1.3 million miles on it that went through, I think, three batteries or something like that. And I'm like, that's the most telling piece of information in the world. The vehicles do last. They do last a long time. And even if there are quality issues, people are seem to be happy to deal with those in exchange for a relatively reliable, long-lasting, uh, environmentally friendly vehicle. So the $64,000 question is, how do you tell what's fact or fiction when it comes to Tesla? It's hard to, and you just have to wait and, and wait to see if, if there's anyone who's, who's supporting that story or if there's a link to any uh, real information about it. There's a video that flies around all the time, and this is actually from a Florida hurricane from several years ago, of Tesla's lined up waiting to charge at a charging station. And and that Tesla stations are incredibly reliable. That's that's fact. That's That's proven by surveys. And they're incredibly fast, and they and they almost always work. So charging has not been an issue for Tesla owners, and it has been for everyone else, because the rest of the Tesla char- uh, EV charging infrastructure is terrible. Well, unlike the big three I mentioned uh, earlier, Tesla started out as an EV manufacturer, and they yeah. have a real lead on everybody else. And they've implemented many innovative ideas. Uh, one of those is variable pricing and cutting out the dealer network. How's that helped them sell more cars? Uh, Jim Farley of Ford suggested that the Ford disadvantage to Tesla, because they deal with a traditional dealer network, is something like fifteen hundred bucks a unit. Then I've also heard twenty five hundred bucks a unit, but it's a significant amount of money because that's where all the margin is. The margin on cars is very low, so if there's another thousand dollars there to be had, or two thousand dollars, that means a great deal to a manufacturer. But working through the traditional dealer network which may or may not be of an advantage to, to the manufacturer, depending on the situation, is expensive. And Tesla has an advantage there. And because they have no traditional franchises, they can get away with this somehow. They battle the law in every state regarding franchise law, but they seem to keep winning. And how does variable pricing uh, work into their advantage? 
that is astonishing. But because there are no vehicles in supply, um, they can simply change the price of a vehicle every day to meet market conditions. And it's stunning how effective this is. They don't even just change pricing. They actually change models. Like they're just sometimes a model that isn't available and they're, they'll add like a long range luxury or something like this, but they're very specific and not everything is available all the time, but they, they do an incredible job of meeting local demand or regional demand that manufacturer, traditional manufacturers simply cannot match. Well, I was one of those that uh, was an early adopter and I put in my $100 to reserve my spot for a cyber truck over three years ago. And a couple of weeks ago, I got a notice from Tesla saying that uh, I'm in queue to get a Cybertruck. They didn't tell me when, but they offered me a $1,000 incentive if I wanted to buy a Model Y or a Model S. And so I thought that was a genius marketing ploy, is that uh, from talking to the salespeople at Tesla, I may not get one till 25, but by offering that $1,000, at least it may get me to purchase uh, a Tesla. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I had to think about this for a moment, and yes, I agree. It's absolutely brilliant. They have a claimed list of 2 million people waiting in line to get a Cybertruck. I doubt that that number's that high, but let's say it's a million or 750,000. That's 750,000 people who want a Tesla. It's the best mailing list in the world, and you offer them $1,000, they can buy a product now, and, and they can just trade it in when their truck shows up. In the meantime, they're driving an EV from a manufacturer they're kind of uh, kind of feel good about. It's awesome. Well, another thing I did not like, uh, again, uh, maybe it's genius uh, marketing. <laughs> to me, I thought it was a bit deceptive. When I went on the website to take a look at buying a Model Y, they had it priced at uh, the way I had it configured at 37500 And there was a tiny little asterisk. So when I went to check out, the price had bumped up to almost 50000 And it was because that asterisk said that this was the savings you would have by saving uh, $3,000 a year in gas over a three-year period. I thought that was deceptive. Thoughts on that? Oh, no, that's terrible. That's not the cost of the vehicle. That's 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 amortized cost of ownership, and it's got nothing to do with the purchase price. That That's that's absolutely flim-flam. That's unacceptable. Yes. So, well, let's talk about some of the would-be or second-tier EV manufacturers. Uh, when we look at the U.S., we have Rivian. We have Lucid, we have Fisker, Bollinger, Canoe, and Aptera. And the last two, I hope to test drive in the next couple of weeks. And then from Vietnam, we have VinFast. From China, we have Zeker. From Croatia, we have Rimac. And that's just to name a few. What are your thoughts on those uh, competitors? Rimac is one of the most interesting. Rimac was born mysteriously by some guy. He's an entrepreneur. Where his early money came from isn't clear, but the Rimac name is sort of famous in Croatia for its uh, organized crime activity. <laughs> no one has made it. So we know where it came from. <laughs> we do and we don't. No one's ever made a direct connection between the two. But it, the Rimac name famous in, in Croatia. But um, this guy's been building, Rimac's been building supercars, mostly sold in Europe, that sell for about $2 million. They're incredibly fast. They're really good looking. And, and before anyone dismisses the company, um, the Volkswagen Group, through its uh, Bugatti uh, division, purchased a chunk. There's a, there's a, an ownership swap. So Rimac is now owned by Bugatti, or Bugatti is now, yeah, I'm sorry. Bugatti has purchased Rimac, and Rimac owns a chunk of Bugatti. It's a very weird ownership situation, but it's now a legit chunk of Volkswagen, and we'll hear more from them in the future. 
Well, it's nice to see so many other companies getting into the market. Competition's good for the consumer. But one of the things that concerns me a bit, you know, are EVs greenwashing. They have fewer moving parts, which is good. They use less uh, materials. They don't use oil. And they have uh, fewer tailpipe emissions, all good for the environment. But how sustainable are EVs if you do a total cost analysis and uh, included the extraction of the raw materials, the manufacturing process, operating the vehicle, and then the end of the life uh, cycle of the vehicle? Would EVs be more or less sustainable than ICE vehicles, internal combustion engines, that is? Everyone calculates the greenness of EVs differently, but I was just looking at a page put up by MIT. It, it's fascinating because it estimates based on ownership um, carbon emissions per mile, basically, and it's it's a lifetime estimate. And worst case scenario, it seems like an EV is about half as dirty as an elect, as a gasoline powered car. That's the good news, and it gets much cleaner over time. So the longer you drive one the greener it gets. And part of the problem is that EV batteries are, are very energy intensive to build. So new on a showroom floor, uh, an EV is about 80% dirtier or less green than an ICE vehicle. But the more you drive it, uh, the more quickly that comes down. So the batteries are tough to make green. After that, everything's good. Are you saying that the production and the mining of the materials is m- more dirty than an ICE vehicle? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and lithium lithium production is especially nasty, and I don't think that's addressed enough. That needs to be cleaned up. And that's something that we need to uh, uh, get the word out. Also, as we shift from uh, more renewable energy and away from coal-burning power plants, operating these cars will even get more cleaner. Absolutely. Um, from your perspective, how has consumer interest and in adoption of EVs evolved in the past year? Yeah, we seem to have finally understood where that wall was going to be. And I think we all knew it was going to be there. And I think that manufacturers are super super happy just to accept early on that people love EVs and they could build as many of them as they wanted. And part of the problem, I think, is that stockholders expected auto manufacturers to be ready to do this. And now we're most makers are a little bit ahead of the game in terms of available production. But we have run out of early adopters and sort of eager mainstream buyers it seems, or we're running out, we're willing to adopt an EV and then go through the hassle of installing a charging station at home. Because that's such an unknown, I think people fear it. It's not that difficult for most people, especially if you have a newer home. But we're at the point now where I think public education about charging stations, especially home charging units, needs to play a role. And we need to figure out what to do about people who live in high-density housing that cannot charge at home. Any other notable shifts in consumer preferences? Um, One of the... One of the interesting things, too, is that most of these EV startups seem to have hit the ground with very expensive vehicles. And we're running into a situation where the world just doesn't need more expensive, big, luxury EV sedans. And and that's a problem with Lucid, for example, that sells basically one car, which is a huge luxury car. And it's supposed to be spectacular, but its cheapest model starts at eighty grand and caps out at 250000 And that's that's not really where the market is anymore. One thing that I've noticed is that uh, when EVs first came out, they got very little range. I mean, the Volt had 30 miles uh, and and the Leaf, you know, it broke 100. That was a lot. Now these cars are getting two, 300 miles to the charge. Is that reducing charge anxiety? And is that a preference that uh, the consumers have changed over time? 
Oh, the numbers certainly help. And, and consumers do seem to want those numbers. And it's funny, even though the average consumer drives somewhere like 35 miles a day, they don't want to give up that range. It's a thing they used to have with gasoline-powered vehicles, and they don't want to give it back. And, and it's interesting, too, that now that we're kind of in this sort of second generation of mass production of EVs, numbers have gotten better. And a lot of it is just software. When the Audi Q, uh, e-tron came out initially, its range was about 212 miles. A year later, it went up by 20, and it was entirely software updates. And we see a lot of that happening. Uh, but but the battery technology has gotten better. It is getting better to the point where we're introducing a different chemistry now, and that's iron phosphate batteries that are a little bit cheaper, and that's helping to keep the price down. Well, how has the Inflation Reduction Act influenced the green automotive landscape over the past year? Uh, uh, Joe Manchin got his way. Uh, he, he was one of the holdouts on, on the passing of the bill. And what he really wanted was for production of batteries to come to the United States. And that has absolutely happened. Um, Chinese manufacturer CATL, which is the world's largest manufacturer of uh, electric vehicle batteries, has joint ventures in the U.S. with a number of manufacturers. And those are batteries that might have been uh, imported from China. That's not going to happen. Now they're going to be built here. So that's really good news. And then Domestic makers who might have built batteries in another country are definitely building them here. What were the big green automotive trends in 2023? Um, wow, the biggest green automotive trends, probably to some degree a normalization of the EV. Even though adoption is slowing, I think people are starting to accept it. People are understanding what charging stations are, where they are, how they work, and then you have to sign up and kind of open an account to do this stuff. But I think the names are starting to become common. People know what EVgo is and Electrify America, and they're starting to understand the limitations of range. I think I think that the language has kind of gotten common. Well, let's look at technology. What were some of the key advancements in battery technology, charging technology, and breakthroughs in manufacturing? One of the interesting things that's happening with charging stations is, though they are not especially reliable, we are seeing a standardization of faster, fast charging. So. Early on, when level three public charging was going on or being installed, a lot of them were 50 kilowatt chargers, which is sort of the bottom line for fast. And it's not that fast. If you had a Tesla Model S, for example, you would have to charge for almost two hours to get where you're at. Uh, and then now almost all electri new Electrify America installations are 150 or 250 kilowatt hours, which is very fast. We're suddenly talking about 20 minutes to get significant range. So that's good. That, and, and I think that that's going to help, I think, ease people's fear about travel. And battery technology? One of the interesting things happening there is that domestic makers, especially Tesla and Ford, are adopting um, lithium iron phosphate or LFP batteries, which are going to lower the base prices of vehicles. The bad news is for now, those batteries are imported from China. So Tesla is losing its tax credit at a couple of, of its Model uh, Y uh, and Model 3 uh, vehicles. What about breakthroughs in manufacturing? Uh, I'm trying to think of any specific green breakthroughs, and, and I'm none popped to mind, actually. Well, let's take a look ahead to 2024. What are the major trends or developments uh, that you anticipate in the EV hybrid industry? Hybrid is interesting, and there's some misinformation out there right now. If, if you just look at the raw numbers, hybrid adoption in the past year has gone up dramatically. Like all of a sudden the public loves hybrids, but that's not really what happened. What happened is that manufacturers like Toyota are offering models that are exclusively hybrid. The Toyota Venza, the Toyota Sienna, 
uh, and a number of other vehicles are only available with hybrid engines. And you know, what's happening is consumers aren't choosing them. They're choosing models that happen to be hybrid. And to wrap it up, uh, what key messages or take takeaways would you like to leave with our listeners regarding the current state and future of EVs and hybrids? Yeah, hybrids, for one thing, are there was a recent study done by, I think it was J.D. Power, that compared the reliability of electric vehicles, gasoline-powered vehicles, and hybrid vehicles. And hybrids are technically gasoline, but they're referred to differently, just so we can make the distinction. And strangely, and despite their complexity, hybrid vehicles are extremely reliable. So if for some reason you're thinking about going green, you don't want to make the EV leap, going with a hybrid vehicle is a great way to go green and and pay no penalty for it whatsoever. And the, the difference in cost, if, if you have the option between a gasoline power vehicle and a hybrid vehicle, now is a couple of thousand dollars. It's not the huge leap it was, and you would definitely get that money back over a five-year ownership. Well, Tom, sincerely from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being a featured guest on the Green Sense Show for the last 10 years. Wow. Wow. The time went by. Wow. <laughs> Uh, you've always been generous and sharing your knowledge with our audience, and it's been a true pleasure. I wish you and your family uh, a happy new year, and I hope it's filled with health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, thank you, Robert. Happy New Year. As listeners, you have many choices when it comes to where you get your news and information. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense, and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM. WBBM Chicago. The Green Sun Show is brought to you by CEA Technology, a leader in building indoor growing systems that allow you to grow pesticide-free and conserve fertilizer, water, and energy to grow crops sustainably. Visit ceatech.com to learn more.